thank you for letting us worship you, giving us the privilege to lift our voices. Just reading again this week about our persecuted brothers and sisters in some places they have to whisper worship so that the authorities don't hear them and we just rejoice that we get to sing loud to you this morning you are worthy of our praise and we worship you today amen amen glad that you're here this morning thanks worship team i, w- I wanted to say like as as uh, uh some of you maybe know some of you don't know i have a degree in music performance and was a worship pastor for a very long time and um i love our worship team. And I love that even right now without a worship pastor, our team continues to lead us with excellence and it's just really cool. And I love being able to, like being a musician and being uh, uh, someone who cares very much about the quality of music, being able to be free in our worship because it's just so good. So thank you guys for leading us. Really appreciate you guys. Um, when I get into Nehemiah this morning, we're going to be in chapter 7, I believe. But I want to tell you a story. There were two little boys standing on the playground. If I preach fast today, it's because I'm having coffee again. I'm off the fast. And I'm like, ooh, coffee, right? And so everything's like double speed. It's crazy. Um, two little boys standing on the playground bragging about who had moved from state to state the most. And uh, the one little boy said, well, my family has moved three times in two years. Thinking like, I got this in the bag, right? And the other kid chimed in and said, you know what? That's nothing. My parents have moved five times this year alone, and I found them every time. (laughs) Now, one of those little boys had a sense of belonging. The other one was going to probably need to see a therapist for a while. But uh, Dr. Lyle Schaller's research says that a third to even a half of all Protestant church goers do not feel a sense of belonging to the congregation or the faith family of which they are members. There's not a sense of belonging in the church. And I'm just saying to you this morning, like at Emmaus Road, that's one of the reasons we take membership so seriously. We talk about covenant membership because we're not looking for numbers, clearly. We're looking for community. We're trying to build a faith family. I know I'm hammered on this. I've been reading Nick Ripkin's book again this week. The Insanity of God. In fact, I I like the book so much, I ordered 20 copies. And if you would like a copy of The Insanity of God, I will give you a copy. The only condition is that you agree to read it. If you're not going to read it, don't take one, okay? But I want to give you a copy of Nick Ripkin's book. I was reading it again this week, and he's talking to this group of Chinese house church leaders from all over rural China, right? All out in the country, not in the city. And they had gathered there so that Nick could hear their stories of persecution. He wanted to glean wisdom and insight from them as to how to better serve our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. Who better to ask than the Chinese house church leaders? Many of those leaders, when they gathered at this farm way out in the middle of nowhere China, they had never met each other, these house church leaders, because they, they, they're isolated. And they had never met each other. And, and uh, Nick was uh, starting out in, in a hut with two to three of those leaders listening to their stories, listening to their testimonies. And what they very quickly stopped him the first day and said, 
We would really like for to do this out in the open so that everybody can hear everybody else's story because we don't even know each other. And, and so they, they would meet for several days in this courtyard of the secluded farm, sitting on the ground for hours and hours and hours, just listening to the stories of other house church leaders and their, their testimonies. And after several days of the stories, they stopped and they said, well, we want to hear from you, Dr. Nick. We want you to teach us. And um, Nick was just kind of like... Whoa, I, I don't know what to say to that because you guys are persecuted and your faith is a deeper kind of faith and I'm not sure I'm qualified to really speak to you about what the Bible says. And, and instead he asked him, he said, do you have any questions that I can answer for you? As persecuted Chinese house church leaders, how can, what can I answer? How can I help you? What do you want to know? And so this is the question. This blows my mind. This one Chinese house church leader stood up and he said, I would like to know if the gospel has reached other places around the world. They didn't know. (laughs) They didn't know. He wanted to know if the gospel had gone to the nations. He was dying to get news of the gospel reaching other people around the world, not just in China. I I was blown away by that. And Nick writes in his book that he was stunned by the question because he realized that their relative isolation meant that they didn't know anything about the church worldwide. They didn't know anything about the spread of the gospel among the nations. And he began to tell them about what was going on in the world and how the gospel was spreading to the nations. And they began to shout and clap and praise God. And after they had done that for a while, someone else asked a question. They wanted to know whether or not other groups of Christians around the world were experiencing persecution for their faith as well. And Nick had served in a missionary, as a missionary for 15 years in Somalia, had been in and out of Mogadishu, had been in and out of that Muslim country, had seen death up close and personal, people persecuted and put to death for their faith. And he began to relate to them his personal experience as a missionary, how Islamic countries were openly persecuting Christians and killing converts. And these Chinese believers sat there in silence. They had never heard these things before that moment. And the rest of that evening was this eerily quiet, subdued, just time. And they all went to sleep, and they're on the hard ground. And uh, their custom, these Chinese church leaders, they get up at 6 a.m. every morning to pray. And they don't pray quietly, they pray loud. They just, whether they pray in their normal speaking voice, and they just talk to God, just like I'm talking to you right now. And they just pray for an hour every morning before they do anything else. They just talk to God. And, and so at 5 a.m., not 6 a.m. when they get up to do that, but at 5 a.m., Nick woke up to the sound of moaning and, and crying and, and, and people just, ah, just weeping and, and crying out. And he got up and he came out. He, he thought maybe that the authorities had found them and they were arresting these house church leaders and they were being beaten. And, 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 he, and he rushes out into the courtyard and this is what he saw. He saw the house church leaders, these Chinese house church leaders just sitting on the ground, just rocking and crying and they were grabbing fistfuls of dirt and flinging them into the air and just crying out to God and praying and Nick's interpreter came to him and he asked him what are they doing and he said instead of 6 a.m. rising for prayers for an hour as is their daily custom they all agreed before they went to bed that they get up at five to petition God to intercede for the persecuted believers around the world are you kidding me I need like three Starbucks before I could do that at 5 a.m. And they are up. They are up and they're just interceding for God. 
I, I share all of that with you, not to shame us. Although I think in some ways we, we really are deficient in our faith. We, our comfort has made us so soft. But I share that because what you, what, what you see when you, you read that excerpt, when you, when you wrestle with what's happening there, what you're seeing is a deep sense of belonging to the body of Christ. Like 24 hours prior, they didn't even know that there were believers around the world and they didn't know that those believers were being persecuted. And here they are rising at 5 a.m. to cry out to God on behalf of the brothers and sisters that they've never met who they just found out about 12 hours ago. They, they have this deep sense of belonging. They know that they can't go to that place. They know that they can't change what's happening in their strength. But they're, they're, they're just deeply in, engaged in the reality that those are our brothers and sisters and that we can pray for them and we must pray for them and that God can work in that situation. And that's what it means to belong. That's what it means to belong. In Acts 2, uh, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were being done by the apostles. And all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They were selling their possessions and goods and giving to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They praised God and enjoyed the favor of the people. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Are you hungry to see people being saved? I am. I am. One of the things that was so attractive about the church in the book of Acts was that they were loving each other. They had this deep sense of belonging to one another that the rest of the culture didn't have. And they were taking care of each other and meeting the practical needs and eating meals together and fellowshipping. And the rest of the Jewish culture, even the Jews who are supposed to be the people of God, are going, what is this? You care for widows? These people are sick. Clearly God doesn't like them. And you care about them? And it was just this incredible testimony. The early church def- defining uh, what it meant to belong to Jesus in that first season. And I want us to keep that idea in, in the forefront of our brain as we look at Nehemiah chapter 7 this morning. If you've got your Bible, uh, you flip over to Nehemiah 7. If you're on your device and you go to the Version Bible app and then you navigate to events, you'll see my sermon notes there from Israel Church. You can follow along there as well. And I'll just warn you right now, chapter 7 is a long chapter, and we're going to skip a good chunk in the middle. I'll tell you when we get there. Let's look at verse 1. Now, when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani, and Hanani, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was more faithful and God-fearing, uh, and God-fearing man than many. So right out of the gate, here's what Nehemiah's doing. He's delegating to emerging leaders. He recognizes that he doesn't need to be the hands-on leader in every facet of everything that's going on all the time. He needed to give charge over the gates, the appointing of the guards, the, the appointment of the times when the gates would be open and closed, and all that stuff he was giving to someone else who was responsible. And this is an important development because it's essential for any organization, especially the church, especially the people of God, to regularly be raising up and equipping new leaders and giving them responsibility. 
Man, in the years ahead, it may feel like fruit basket turnover at Emmaus Road Church. You're like, well, what happened to that guy? He was up front a lot, and now he's gone. It's like, yeah, well, he planted a church. We planted him. There's going to be all this turnover and, and people coming and going because... We believe that God blesses ministries and he raises up leaders. And when we're making disciples, you don't keep the disciples in the holy huddle. You send them out with the gospel, right? And so it may feel like that to you. And, and, and we're striving to raise up mature leaders to send them out with our blessing and our support because we want to see Jesus' kingdom expanded, not our kingdom. We want to see his kingdom expand. And, and, and maybe some of the people here in Nehemiah over those 52 days, you know, you kind of get in a rut. You, you, you like the leadership. You like Nehemiah's leadership. And, and you can just hear the, the calcification kind of happen in the heart. You, you watch it happen. Just hang around church for a little while. You'll see calcification happen in the heart. I, I, I don't like that new worship music. That's not the way I, I'm used to worshiping. I, I don't like the, I don't like that we put the chairs in a different arrangement. I like, you know, it just, it happens. It happens in our hearts, right? And, and I can hear the people of Israel now, like, I, I like the way Nehemiah does it. I don't want to have to get used to somebody else's leadership. And I get that. Like, I'm just as, I'm just as prone to be the crotchety old church guy as anybody, right? My, my favorite story about that is Noah and him discovering Lecrae and Christian rap. And I was just like, oh, man, I don't know. You know, and I listened to some of his music, and he's getting this really good theology. The content was really solid, but I just don't like the genre. I just don't prefer it. And I see in my heart that own propensity to go, I, I, I don't like that music. You know, be that old man, you know, turn that down. You know, I, I'm going to be that guy if I'm not careful. Too old, that's right famous last words of the church we've never done it that way before that'll kill a church you start adopting that mentality that'll kill your church and so emerging leaders i'll just give you a quick acronym emerging leaders are fat they are faithful accountable and teachable that's what you're looking for in emerging leaders. You want people who are faithful. They, they show up when they say they're going to show up. They do what they say they're going to do. They're taking ownership, right? They're accountable. They're putting themselves under authority, and they're making themselves available and saying, was this up to speed? Did I do this right? Can I do this better? Instruct me. Tell me what to do. I'm accountable to you. And then they're teachable. You come alongside them and say, hey, listen, that thing you did, it turned out okay, but if you do it this way, it will go faster. And they go, hey, thanks for that. That's helpful. They don't go, you ever, how many of you have teenagers, preteens? You get used to that sound, that little grunt. That's disdain. That's parental disdain. Why are you telling me this? I know everything, right? That's not teachable, right? And so you're looking for people who are faithful and accountable and teachable. And there's this ownership mentality you look for in emerging leaders. Uh, you know, you think, I might be an hourly employee, but I'm going to jump in and serve. I'm going to choose to lead rather than shrugging off responsibility. I'm going to give my best. I'm going to give my all and not just squeak by on minimal effort. I've, I've got a heart to move this organization forward. Even if I don't have all the gifts and the skills yet, I want to find ways to discover and utilize my gifts, my strengths and abilities and resources for the mission and where we're going. And, and, and just as a side note, I was really encouraged uh, yesterday. We had our first meeting of the teaching team, a Maestro teaching team, and some young guys in the room and some old guys in the room, and it was just sweet. 
It was just so good to work through the book of Galatians and talk about what's coming in the fall and map out that book and say, this is where we're going and this is how we're going to break it up and, and uh, just do that. Because some, you know, some of these guys are like, I've never preached. I've never, <laughs> I've never taught through a book. I'm not sure how to do this. And it was just this really sweet time of uh, equipping and, and talking through it. It was really good. And, and, and I just stopped this morning to brag on a couple of people since we're talking about emerging leaders and people who are faithful and accountable and teachable. I love um, I'm thankful for people like CJ and Chloe Reese um, taking the initiative with the midweek mom gathering. I don't know if any of you moms with little ones have, have seen that here in the hallway. Check out the table. Uh, midweek mom gathering. We don't have a mops ministry yet. We'll get there. But right now she's just saying, hey, you know what? We've got an apartment and we've got a room that's kind of designated for play for the kids. Bring your, bring your little baby over here. Let them play. Bring your toddler. Let them play. And let the moms just be sane for an hour. Can we just, yeah, that's a blessing. I love it. CJ's constantly coming to me with new ideas ideas. What can I take off your plate? What can we do? I love it. I love Wayne and Stephanie Eyring as if having four kids wasn't enough to keep them busy. They regularly care for me and Jen and our family and our marriage and they, and they shepherd this congregation well. And I just, man, I love it. I love it. There, there's so many more things I could say about so many people in this small congregation, but I'm going to stop because I don't want to give anybody the misconception that we've arrived. Okay, I don't want. I want to paint the picture like things are great. It's so perfect. You don't have to do anything. Just sit there and soak. And I, I don't. I don't want you. To, I don't want that to happen in your heart, right? Sometimes you paint too good a picture. People slump into complacency because they assume that they're not needed. But I want to just say to you that you are needed, and that you belong here. You belong. You know, I, I hear this. I hear this regularly, man. I'm, I, you know, I'm just content to be a seat warmer. I don't aspire to leadership in the church. And I just want to tell you, that riles me up. That riles me up. Do not ever, ever be content with sitting and soaking in the church. Do not ever be content with sitting and soaking. If you are a Christ follower, a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you've placed your faith in Jesus for salvation, and you've been entrusted with a stewardship, you've been given a mission, the Holy Spirit of God lives in you and has given you gifts for the building up of the kingdom of God and the body of Christ. You've been given the gospel, not just for your own salvation, but for you to pass that gospel on to others so that they might come to know Jesus Christ. Do not ever be content with sitting and soaking. I show up on Sunday, I passively listen to the sermon, and that's enough. No, it's not. It's not. In fact, look, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says this. He says, all this ministry is from God, who through Jesus has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Did you catch that? He says, yeah, he's reconciled you to himself. He's reconciled us to himself. And then he's, he's gone beyond and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the whole world to himself, not counting trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He says, therefore, we're ambassadors of Christ. God is making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're we're imploring people, begging them, please listen to Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the trust that we've been given. The Great Commission is a trust and entrusted with the message of reconciliation. 
between God and man, more than a command to be obeyed, more than that. The Great Commission is more than a suggestion to be considered. It is a trust. Did you know uh, the national statistic is that at least 60% of the people in our community will never set foot in this church. They will never come to a service or a function at this church. That's the national average. 60% of Stanwood Camano will never set foot in this church or, or any evangelical church in our community. Never darken a door. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, let's just skip right along and hum right along to hell? I hope not. I hope you're not content with that. We've got to stop thinking about being attractional and we need to go to them, right? Go to them. We've got to get out of our comfort zones and go to the lost with the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm going to step down off my soapbox for just a minute. Let's go back to Nehemiah. I kind of went, kind of went in a different direction. Right, we'll come, come back to Nehemiah. Verse 3. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. So this is Nehemiah calling the people of God to be on their guard against the enemy. Yes, the walls are built, the gates are being hung and placed and, and all that's being set up and people are put, put in charge of that, but still be remain vigilant. Don't slump back into complacency, right? Eternal vigilance is the price of Christian liberty. Vigilance at the societal level, at the cultural level. And this is precisely why the culture had shifted right out from under Israel, right? We we talked about them being backslidden, that they had taken the word of God for granted. They weren't really interested in obeying God. They just assumed that they, they assumed God. They presumed upon his word. Yeah, God's good with us. We're his people. We're the Jews, right? And that's what had happened. And as they presumed upon the Lord, they just slid morally down this slippery slope and into depravity. It's the same thing that's happened here in America. Same thing that's happened in our country. So there's a cultural vigilance and then there's a personal vigilance. Think about this. We highly value comfort in our culture. Do we not? Now, if I brought recliners in here and put recliners on this side of the room and then the school chairs on this side of the room, how many people would be sitting over here? Zero. Everybody's in the recliner, right? We, we prefer comfort. And I don't blame you. I, I might, if, if, I, if I knew that I wouldn't fall asleep, I would preach from a recliner. But you didn't come here to hear me snore. If you'd like to hear me snore, come to the house on Sunday afternoon. I'll show you what that looks like. But there's, there's, a, there's this just axiomatic reality about our culture that we love comfort. And when you stop and think about it, comfort has been afforded to us by security. The security that we have as Americans was gained by blood, sweat, and tears. Many people die to secure our freedom, and we largely take that for granted. So what we do is we live with the illusion of security. We live with the illusion, this comforting idea that nothing bad, evil, or even hard will ever befall us. We like that thought. 
Nothing bad, nothing evil, nothing hard is ever going to happen to me. And we live in that place. And then when something bad or evil or hard does happen, our lives are in total disarray. We can't understand why God would allow this to happen. And this warm embrace of the illusion of security that undergirds our comfort, and, and by the way, our comfort is the highest value that we hold as Americans. Comfort is the highest value we hold. It will always breed complacency. It will always breed complacency. And that's a constant danger for the church. Constant opposition to the mission of Jesus Christ. And Jesus wants to shatter your illusion of security and tear down your comfort. And for some of you, here's the fear. You're afraid uh, uh, that Jesus will call you to, to missions. You're afraid somewhere down the line, Jesus is going to say, I want you to go to somewhere outside the U.S. And I I talk to people about this all the time, and I hear the the average response. I just don't want Jesus calling me to move to another country. I don't want to have to learn a new language. I don't want to learn a new culture, a new way of life. And we sat down last month with some friends of ours from a previous church. Uh, The Barnharts have seven kids. Seven kids from high school senior to like toddler. It's crazy. I'm like, how do you guys even get from your house to church? I don't even understand how it works. It's crazy. They just, when they came over to the house to talk to us about their, their call to missions, they only brought one kid. And the one kid was just like crazy. It was crazy. I was like, I don't get it. It was, it was just nuts. But we love them. Listening to them talk about God calling their family to Central Africa. I cannot name the country that God's called them to. It's, it's, a, it's a Muslim country. I can't talk about it for fear that word would get back uh, to, to somebody about that. But they, they're heeding the call with seven kids. For some of you, the fear is that God can call you to give generously. And I, and I hear this in people's hearts all the time. I love Jesus well enough, but just don't go touching my money. Don't, don't mess with my stuff. I work hard for my stuff. So with what do you work hard? With what do you work hard? Your body? Oh, you mean the muscles that God designed? That meat pump in your chest that runs on jelly donuts that keeps the blood moving? Is that, what, is that what enables you to work hard? Those air sacs that magically fill up with oxygen and get oxygen to your cells every minute of the day? Is that how you work hard? And, and so tell me, when did you design your body? Okay. Okay. So it's God's body that you work hard with, but it's your stuff. I, 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 don't, I don't think that makes sense. The means by which you gain your stuff is not yours. And that means that all the money and all the stuff doesn't actually belong to you. It belongs to God. So you need to be asking, what do you want me to do with it? What do you want me to do with your stuff, Lord? I could go on. I could go on like this. But the, matter, the fact of the matter is we don't actually stop and ask Jesus what he wants for us. Because we're afraid of what he might say. We don't pray and say, God, what is your will for me? Because we're afraid of what he might say. We don't ask because we're afraid of the answer. What he wants from me is going to spoil my wants, my plans, my desires. And what we're saying is we don't actually think God's plan is good. We don't actually think that his end game for us is better than our plans for ourselves. 
That's, that's an offense to God. Some of you here last week, you met uh, Matt and Rachel McClure, who are with us, some old friends from campus ministry. And as they went home on last Monday, as I was driving them to the airport, I had them securely locked in the van with me for at least 60 minutes. And I, and I just said, here's the challenge, guys. We want you here. We need you here with us serving. And we are challenging you to really prayerfully consider relocating to the West Coast to come and help us with the man's road and, and and they were just like ah that's a lot and i said here's what i want you to do do not filter this question through the grid of our parents gonna will the grandparents be upset if we take the grandkids to the other side of the country don't don't start there please start with this what does jesus want for our family I want you to go home and I want you to pray and fast for seven days. And I'm not going to contact you until Tuesday the 21st. And you pray and we'll pray. And then I would like to know what you hear Jesus saying. Because we don't need to talk about what needs to happen until we are clear about what Jesus wants. And so... I mean, the question is, is God calling the McClure's to help us with the Mass Road Church? I, I actually sent them an email and I sent them these two passages. Listen to this. Jesus said, Mark 10, truly I say to you, there's nobody who's left their house or their brothers and sisters or mother and father or their own children or land for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this life, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and land and with persecution and <laughs> throwing that in there for good measure. And in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus said, there's nobody who's chosen to sacrifice for the sake of the expansion of the kingdom that doesn't receive more now in the body of Christ and in the age to come, eternal life. And the trade-off is worth it. I sent them Luke chapter 9, verse 57 on. And and it says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. You ever have that moment? Not really thinking it through? And then he says, okay, let's go over here. And you're like, whoa, 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 wait wait a minute, Jesus. I'm not sure I really meant that, right? Somebody said, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, cool. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You follow me. I, I, I don't have a house. I don't have a home. To another one, he said, come follow me. But that person said, Lord, let me first go bury my, my, my father. And Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another one said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go and say farewell to those at home. And Jesus says, nobody who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Could it be that Jesus is calling the McClure's to leave father, mother, and Proximity to family for the sake of the gospel? I know that's not a pleasant thought, but I'm asking them to consider the possibility. And I'm asking you, could God be calling you to missions? Could God be calling you to give generously? Could God be calling you to step out of your comfort zone and talk to your coworker about the gospel? Are you even asking the Lord? Are you even open to what he has to say? can't say God is leading us here or not leading us there until you've asked him and waited to hear his answer. By the way, Matt and Rachel, if you're listening to the podcast, (laughs) I trust God to speak to your hearts. Look at verse five. God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and officials and the people enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first and I found written in it 
These are the people of the province who came up out of captivity, those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. And they returned to Jerusalem and Judah, and each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rehemiah, Naamani, Mordecai, Bishlan, uh, Mishpareth, Bigvai, Nahum, Beana. And then, and then I'm going to stop right there because the next section here is really long, and I'm not going to read all that. Okay, so skip down to verse 61. The following were those who came from Telmela, Telharsha, Cherub, Adon, and Emmer, but they could not prove their father's houses or their descent. They didn't have any way to prove their genealogy. Uh, whether they belonged to Israel, whether they're actually Jews, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nekodah. 642. Also the priests, the sons of Hobiah, sons of Hakaz, the sons of Basrelia, had taken wife of the daughters of uh, Barzillai, the Gileadite, who was called by their name. They saw their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it wasn't found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. They couldn't prove that they were Levites, right? And so the governor told them they were not to partake of the most holy food until the priest with an Ur- Urim and Thummim should arise, and then they could consult God and figure it out, right? But until then, don't do it. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. They had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, camels 435, and the donkeys win by a long shot 6,720. Now some of the heads of the father's house gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest's garments, and 500 minas of silver. Some of the heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priests' garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all of Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. They're starting to settle back in to the normalcy of life in Israel. They've gotten the wall built. They've gotten the gates taken care of. They've assigned leadership. And now things are starting to settle out the way that they should be, right? So why did I chip... What choose to skip over the reading of the lengthy genealogy in this chapter? Uh, well, mostly because there's a lot of names that I didn't want to try to pronounce, and I knew that I would bore you and probably lose you. But I want to stop and go back and just say, it's in God's word, so it is important. Nothing in God's word is unimportant. And, and the fact that it appears in almost a precisely same way in Ezra chapter 2 reinforces the fact that this is important to God. Uh, God does not forget those who are faithful to him. In fact, Psalm 112, 6 says, For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. Right? So God doesn't forget those who are faithful. And, and most commentators are going to label Nehemiah chapter 7 as a picture of restoration and rejuvenation. And I don't think that's wrong, but I would submit to you that this chapter is actually about belonging. It's about belonging to the people of God. Those people whose names we did not read are important to God because they belong to him. And because they belong to him, they belong to each other. I want you to think back to your school days, some of you. Um, some of you are still in them. I want you to think back to being picked for kickball teams. 
and how traumatic that was for some of us. Unless you were a star athlete, it could be traumatic. I know I'm going to go last. And they're going to fight over which team has to take me. Right? We were sorted, ranked, and valued according to our looks, athleticism, our intelligence, and our popularity. All the things that the world deeply values and all the things that God doesn't give a rip about were the way in which we were sorted and valued. There was an unspoken hierarchy. It determined where you sat at lunch. It determined where you sat on the bus. And the result is that many of us, even today, deeply and secretly fear that we don't fit in. We don't fit in. We don't belong. Belonging is incredibly different from fitting in. Let me make this distinction. See, belonging encourages authenticity. Walking your journey of faith at your pace. Walking with Jesus. Fitting in implies some standard that you have to attain to in order to be accepted. That's not what Christ has called us to. If you have to be like me, that's fitting in, and you don't want to be like me. But if you get to be yourself as you follow Jesus, that's called belonging. That's called belonging. And that's what makes the church so different from the world, or at least it should. Because here, somebody's saving a spot for you on Sunday morning. Here, somebody's waiting for you to step up onto the curb and and shake your hand and hug your neck and ask how you're doing, or maybe they're going to shake your neck and hug your hand. I don't know. But they're, they're just happy to see you. Church is where people who belong to God find community and share life together. We laugh together. We weep together. We sing loudly together. I'm still singing louder than all you put together. You're going to have to step it up. Step up your game. We pray with and for each other. It's where we break bread in each other's homes. It's where we share life with each other. See, the church of Jesus Christ is where you're an insider by the grace of God. Because of the blood of Jesus. It's where you belong. It's where you belong. Ephesians 2, Paul says this in verse 12. He says, I want you to remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. Separated, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. You were the last kids picked for kickball. But now, Christ Jesus, who... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He's included us. We belong to him. In our culture, you know it's the individual above all else. We're so individualistic. We celebrate the person, the individual. We've lost any sense of corporate identity. And I think even at our stage, we've lost kind of a sense of national identity. Not to mention how divided we are as a country, like never before in our short history, except maybe when the North was shooting at the South and the South was shooting back at the North. I think we're coming to that place. We miss quite a bit in the Bible when it comes to understanding God's word because the the cultures of those times, even New Testament cultures, were largely collectivist in terms of identity, right? And this is why you see the Jews corporately called Israel because Israel or Jacob was their federal head. And so, you know, Abraham had the promise, Isaac was the son that was promised, and then Jacob was the, the one to whom the promise came, and he's the father of the tribes of Israel. So, so God changed his name to Israel. He's their father. And in that kind of culture, community is everything. It's everything. And the individual largely conforms to the community's expectations and morality and religion and culture. And those things had so much more importance in that day than they do in our context in 21st century America. But, but lest we dismiss 
those old ways of life that are forgotten by us, there's something very important, I would say, even necessary about community. And I think it's something that we're very much in danger of losing in our day. We're losing a sense of community. And, and, and it's why we've chosen life groups as a church as our first and primary ministry beyond Sunday mornings because community, especially community that's built around shared values and beliefs, has tremendous formative power in the lives of people. I've seen it. I've seen it this year in our life groups. I've seen it in the conversations I've had with people. I've seen the change that Jesus brings when people get together and just share life and open up about their struggles and pray for each other. And it's just crazy. And you look at the church and you go, why aren't we doing more of that, right? There's some reasons. Why, the same reasons why I began to regularly mention and urge and remind and keep before you the idea of church membership at Emmaus Road. It's not, it's not meant to be a place where you just pop in at your leisure. It's, it's, it's a community of belonging, right? The biblical standard for the deepest level of relationship is covenant. Covenant is not an exchange of goods and services, but of persons. It's heart for heart, will for will. And at Emmaus Road, we believe that membership to our faith family is a covenant relationship. So we call you to that. And there are expectations. And this is the great part about covenant. Covenant articulates you have expectations about church leadership and you're right to have those expectations. And here's what they should be. You should expect your leaders to be above reproach. You should expect your leaders to care for the flock. You should expect your leaders to do X and Y and Z. And we go, that's great. That's part of covenant. Here's the other part. Your leaders expect some stuff from you. So, whoa, 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 whoa. I was really cool up until this point. I know. This is what covenant is. It's an exchange of persons. Right? You enter into covenant. You expect some things from your leadership. Your leadership expects some things from you. And, and covenant gives a context for those expectations in community, in belonging. What I'm talking about this morning is the difference between being at church and belonging to the church. Because those who simply choose to be at church come and go as they want. Might tip the Holy Spirit one week if the service gives them the feels. Right? Or they might not. Might come to ministry functions even for a season or disappear for weeks and months at a time. But I want you to hear this. I want to say to you this morning that none of our leadership at Emmaus Road wants you to simply be at church every week. I mean, it would be nice if you were at church every week. Morale is up when the room is full, right? It's awesome when there are more voices praising Jesus and worshiping him. It's beneficial to have you here every week, whether you know it or not. But I want you to know, as your pastor, I don't want you to just be here. That's not my heart for you. I don't want you to just be here. I want you to know that you belong here. I want you to know that you are welcome here. And my desire for every one of you is that you discover what it means to fully belong to the Father. Fully have a sense of belonging to his faith family. To know and believe that you belong to this community of believers. You belong here. Even the weird ones among you. Some of you looked up. You're like, oh, is he talking about me? Yes. All of you. You're so wonderfully weird in your own way. And I know what I'm talking about. I'm overqualified on weird. Overqualified. I love that when I said that, people were like, what, what? Did he say my name? Yes. You belong here. Hebrews 10 says, don't stop meeting together with other believers, which some people have gotten in the habit of doing, but instead encourage each other, especially as you see the day of the Lord drawing near. 
Man, don't stop meeting together. Don't stop belonging to each other. If I could just give you practical handholds this morning, five quick ways to develop a sense of belonging at Emmaus Road Church. Let me give you five really practical ways. Here they are. I'm going to go real fast. Give generously. Give generously. Jesus said, where your treasure is, your money, your wealth, wherever you're investing your money, your treasure, that's where your heart is. And if you are stingy to the kingdom, you don't have a sense of belonging to the church. Simple math. Engaging in generosity places your heart squarely in the kingdom with very little doubt about your commitment to the mission or the people who are engaged in the mission. It it, it demonstrates to everybody, including you, that you're all in. And it frees others to engage with you, to hear your story, and to know that you're all in and you're not going to bail. It frees that process of getting to know others. So give generously, number one. Number two, serve others. Figure out what the needs are and serve other people around you. Serving others creates the opportunity for common ground uh, as we share experiences with each other. Some of the best conversations, best relationships have been forged as I've served alongside other people and just and just donated my time, given my energy or effort to something, and gotten to know the person serving next to me. Tight, deep bonds of relationship. Serve others. Serve others. Here's number three. Be intentional in engaging people. Get friendly. Get friendly. Get weird friendly. Take your weirdness. Make it friendly. Do it. Conversations before and after service. Did you know that you're allowed to talk to people? You don't have to like run to the door or wait till the service starts and then sneak in. You can talk to people. It's okay. You can, you can talk to me. I'll, I'll even introduce you to people. I'll make it awkward. It'll be great. It'll be great. Invite people to connect with you outside of Sunday morning. Here's, here's a great idea. As you're standing around after church having a conversation, say this. You wish you get coffee this week. Okay, so you don't drink coffee. Shame on you. We should get tea this week. Hey, let's grab lunch together. I'd love, to, I'd love to get to know you a little bit better. Wow. I'm allowed to say that? Yes. Yes. Say it. Be intentional. Number four, share your story. One of the most meaningful things you can do is to sit down with another Christ follower and share your story. How did you come to first know Jesus? Share your story. What's Jesus doing in your life right now? Share your story. It gives context to who you are as a person and it opens up the heart, uh, your heart to other people in the body of Christ. As you share your story, you're putting yourself out there and as they share their story, you're getting to know who they are and it's beautiful. And then here's number five, weird. Uh, This doesn't seem to fit, but follow Jesus in believer's baptism. You want to feel a sense of belonging in the church? Here's the deal. Jesus said, when you put your faith in me, you come to faith in in the Son of Man, here's the first act of obedience I want you to follow through on, which is to to be baptized, water baptized. And so here's here's the, the, the way this plays out. The first act of obedience is to follow Jesus in believer's baptism. So it's hard to walk in obedience to Jesus in any ongoing sense when you haven't taken that first step of obedience. Does that make sense? He said, if you follow me, do this first, and you're like, hmm, eh, I'm going to skip over that, and, 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 I'll, and I'll, but I'll do these other things. He's like, no, 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 go back. Go back and do the thing I said to do, right? So following Jesus in baptism doesn't, doesn't seem like it fits, but it, it really does. 
And here's what I want to say to you as I wrap up this morning. Five things on the screen. Pick one right now. Pick one right now. And go, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. Because I need to develop my sense of belonging personally. Pick the one that you need to do. You got it? Up and down is yes. Side to side is no. I want to see all up and down. I got it. Okay. Here's the next part. (laughs) I would like to know what it is. (sighs) He's going to hold me accountable. Yes, I am. Yes, I would like to know what it is. So email me, text me, Facebook message me, phone call, carrier pigeon, flaming arrow. Get it to me somehow. Whatever you do, ASAP, I want to know what you picked. Thank you, flaming arrow. Now I want to know which one you picked to do, not just the means by which you're going to get it to me. And I'm watching for your flaming arrow. Thank you very much. Paul says this, Romans 12, 4 and 5, each of us has one body. And just as each of us has one body with many parts, many members, and these members don't all have the same function, right? So in Christ, we, though we're many, we form one body, and each member, listen to this, belongs to all the rest. Each member belongs to all the rest. There is a place for friendship that feels like family. There's a place where no one is alone in their struggles. There's a place where every single person has purpose, a place where your unique life experiences, whether they've been pleasant or painful, can be used to make a difference. That place is the local church. And you are not alone, and you belong here. Jesus, would you drive that truth down deep in our hearts today? And just as the people of God were settling back in, uh, they'd been through this trial together, they had built a wall together, they had labored together, uh, defended each other against the enemy's onslaughts and attacks and lies and deceits. Uh, they were bonded. They were bonded to one another. They were coming under your headship and leadership again, and, and the sense of belonging just flourished among them. And we, and we ask you for that. We need that. My prayer is that every person in this room would would know and feel uh, that sense of belonging to you and to the body of Christ. And if this is not their church home, that it it would become that. Or if you want them in another local church, that you'd show them that. But Lord, whatever you want to do, we're asking for that sense of belonging. Because out of that security and belonging to you and to your people, we're free in Christ Jesus to obey. We're free to to admit our struggles and our weaknesses. We're free to come alongside each other and support one another. So, Lord, we ask you for that. Give us that sense of belonging and lead us and guide us. We ask in your name. Amen.